The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix podcast. Tune in today. Kia ora and welcome to the final Summer Reissue episode of The Fold. We'll be back with new episodes in the next week or two. This is one of the most commented on, I think, episodes of the year. It's Bernard Hickey, uh, after his departure from Newsroom, talking about, I guess, the the sort of relationship between the, the news media and politics and economics. And he really goes in on some subjects and sort of gives a grand unified theory of the relationship between politics and the media, which is very long and absolutely super compelling. Bernard is you know, one of the, the most impressive journalists in this country and I think we sort of caught him on a on a day when he had a lot in his mind and really, really went somewhere. Uh, my huge thanks to Vodafone for sponsoring The Fold. Uh, kia ora and welcome to The Fold for this week. Uh, my name's Duncan Grieve and I'm joined by Bernard Hickey uh, for for our pod. And Bernard is, I mean, I'm a, a, a huge admirer of him. He's, he's a journalist and an entrepreneur within journalism. I don't really, it feels like he's had like a, his CV looks like it's two or three lifetimes long. Uh, you know, he's... He was one of the founders of Interest.co.nz. He's worked in senior roles at uh, Fairfax slash staff on their business team. He founded Hive. Journalism.org.nz was one of the founders of Newsroom. And that's probably barely scratching the surface of all that he's done. Uh, He has also just in the last couple of weeks uh, launched a new sort of daily, often more than more than once a day, uh, email called the Kaka, uh, which is on Substack and you should definitely subscribe to, even if you are overly subscribed to newsletters like I am. It's a, I mean, it's basically Bernard being Bernard, but in an even raw uh, and unfiltered form. It, it allows him, I think he sort of characterized it as, uh, you know, kind of, him his thoughts in the process of him having them unf- unfinished thoughts and I think because it's responding to real time information and because it you know almost well he he it explicitly isn't resolved it's actually quite you know it often meets and and asks and and sets your own mind off in in kind of key questions and it it is it isn't sort of straight reporting there is there is reporting in it. Um, there's elements of opinion and analysis, and it's just, I don't know, I think it's, it's a really good product and it'll be really interesting to see where he takes it. So we talked about that. We also talked about Newsroom, what he achieved there and uh, why he left. Uh, there's a lot, that's a really interesting and, and incredibly long story, but it's worth sticking around through it. He, we talked about government policy towards media and the the sort of New Zealand media market, and he has a very interesting, I think, reasonably persuasive theory of it. Uh, we we also talked about the wage subsidy, about the the sort of stuff acquisition, and and about where he's planning on heading uh, next in, in his career. Um, but I mean, look, I, I think it's a really interesting le- lesson. Bernard is one of the most uh, you know interesting, and I think to use an overused, a very overused phrase, unique journalists in uh, New Zealand because because of where he sits. He basically sits at the intersection of, of politics and, and economics um, but writes for a general audience about things which are often made to be quite, 
mysterious or, or, or boring, and and he finds a way to make them incredibly urgent and exciting. And you know, the, the, that's a real skill, and it's it's very rare. Uh, Patrick Smelly does it well. Liam Dan does it well, but I I think. Um, no one does it with the same kind of intensity and focus and passion uh, that that Bernard Hickey does, and so you know, I think I think he's he's always worth listening to. But at this particular point in his career, fresh off one thing and on the cusp of the next, is a really interesting time to to hear him out. So I will get out of the way and let you do just that. Uh, kia ora, Bernard. Um, thank you so much for coming up and, and welcome to The Fold. Cheers, kia ora. Uh, and uh, let's just launch right into your, your new venture, which is maybe, is it a week old? The, the kaka. Yeah, the kaka. I wouldn't, a venture is perhaps a, a grand word for a substack, uh, which I throw stuff on and see what happens. Um, I'm writing stuff there. I do stuff, you know, once every day or two, essentially to create a connection and and have a place where I can do my writing and say the things that I want to say personally, which I can't necessarily do in a column or a news article that I write for my freelance um, bits and pieces. And it's designed, at least for the next year, as a sort of a, just a holding place. I wouldn't call it a business or a venture. It's like something that I set up in 10 minutes and now I'm publishing through it. And uh, at some point, it may be useful to make a little bit of money, but not right now because I have a restraint of trade with Newsroom. So Newsroom, I uh, left Newsroom in uh, September, September the 20th, and essentially I have a year in which um, I've agreed happily uh, not to uh, launch any sort of subscription service or you know, poach anyone from newsroom or do anything rightly that uh, restraint of trade stops me from doing. Well, I'm still a shareholder at newsroom, um, no longer a director or an employee, and understandably they wanted to avoid me you know, racing out and setting up a new subscription service. Right, well, we'll get to newsroom shortly, but I mean, I, I feel like you're being too, too modest with, with the kaka because it's... What it feels kind of new and interesting and different to me, and, and very much suited to your kind of relatively. Uh, you've got you, you you're a um, a high output journalist, shall, shall we say? Um, the, you know, for, for for listeners who haven't read it, it it comes as often as twice a day, or I think maybe even more often. Like basically, whenever you you sort of feel like it. And the thing that I think you talked about, I don't know what the exact phrase, but it was almost like a it was. It was almost real-time journalism. It was your thoughts without maybe unfinished thoughts, a phrase like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, what I call see-through journalism. This is where you get to look over my shoulder at the keyboard as I'm writing it. You get to see the sources that I'm using. Hopefully, I use them in the rawest form with links to articles and charts and data and um, interviews so that you can sort of see my views forming in front of my eyes as I write. And then you can get a better sense of, you know, whether I've gone on the wrong track and you can tell me <laughs> to get turn around and go back. Or, uh, hey, you didn't know this. You think this is what's happening, but this is what's actually happening because I know and uh, here's why. And um, people can either give me feedback through back channels or they can go on and do what every blog does, which is have a comment and have a discussion. So it, it feels to me like a place where I can – a safe place where I can um, – Put all of my stuff. Part of the problem these days, when you're working as a freelancer or in the in the gig space, is you've got things in all sorts of different places. But it's hard to, you know, remember where they are or pull them together or have a repository where that you can be confident they're not going to, you know, fly away or or some server's going to be turned off and it's all gone. I mean, I've written gazillions of words at um, all sorts of sites where I couldn't get hold of that stuff anymore. The link rot is awful. And so if you've got a place that's yours, you can, you know, um, have a repository, which is useful. Yeah, I mean, that that, that sense of it happening in, in something like real time is, is what I find most appealing about it. And that it... Because it, it does feel like it, it sort of strips away one of the layers that we, we have as journalists where there's a certain kind of, you know, we have to have a particular tone, which is often something you're, you know, uh, trying to break down. I know I remember Paddy Gow when there was a story about him uh, going to the US to cover the election and 
um, and him saying that you know, he's always trying to explain politics the way he would to a mate at the pub, and which I think is actually a really useful rule of thumb to try and keep in mind to stop us kind of as a you know I mean a community of journalists kind of putting together just using shorthand or, or kind of a particular f uh, formal phrases that are actually a barrier to a lot of a lot of people. Not that you don't go into sort of technical and, and some pretty... Oh, no, I love going into the gory spaces. detail. And, and my way of doing something similar to Petty, who I like, by the way, and had an office next to him for three or four years, uh, my way of doing it is to think that I'm explaining this to my mum. So often when I'm on radio or... Um, doing any sort of interview or even trying to write, I will be writing as if it's for my mum. So she probably has no idea about the internal workings of the bond market or what's really going on in a caucus room or, you know, what's what's why um, the Prime Minister is so unusually cautious in this area or over-aggressive in this area. I'll try and explain it to as if I was explaining it to my mum. A, that means I'm not going to be mean or rude or condescending <laughs> or, you know... Um, Dumb, and uh, but also I'm going to be talking about it in a way that I think she might understand. So um, and hopefully more people understand it because what I've done over the last thirty years is just dive into some pretty, you know, technically difficult, big idea, um, you know, the sort of things that you get paid five hundred k to understand, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and then I try and explain it to the to Joe Public who's yeah. getting paid fifty k. Well, and I think that you know you that you work at the uh, the intersection of politics and economics is is my sort of understanding of of you and and that sense of looking at the way those two, those two sort of spheres um, impact one another and being unafraid of the complexities because I sometimes think like the bond market is an arcane place that people are very well paid to to um, to analyse. But also, when you break it down into pieces, it's not completely inaccessible, and it does have a huge impact on on people's lives. I mean, and I love what, what you've been writing lately about, you know, the way that the Reserve Bank's kind of one-lever approach has kind of run out of room, and it has had this catastrophic effect on, you know, gener a whole generation of, of, of people. And By a Labour government. I mean, this is. Ex we're we're going to we're going to get to good, that. Good, we're going to get to that. But but you know, like these, they're not so complicated that they aren't are beyond the understanding of real people, and they do have a huge impact on people's lives. And yet, because of the style of business journalism, and I think in some ways it's in the interests of the people who work in bond markets and so on to present things in a jargon-filled way, they tend to be presented in a way that does uh, make people's eyes glaze over, which is to their massive detriment when those, you know, the, those, those markets, those decisions are impacting their lives and impacting their lives with decades-long time horizons. And, and they set the parameters for how politicians can do the things we want them to do. And often we don't know what those parameters are or who's setting them or why. And it'd be nice to explain it, so I try and do that. Yeah, and, and I think I think you do you do it very well, and so I, I do strongly recommend that you uh, just add another newsletter subscription. We, <laughs> That's we, right. We all know because your email box is just too light. It's just empty all the time, right? Uh, so that's what what is? How do people go and find it? Oh, you just go to uh, vakaka t h e k a k a uh, dot substack dot com, or you could Google vakaka and Bernard Hickey, and let's hope Google's done the work, and we'll send you there. So it's interesting. You've you've gone to Substack, which has, has had an amazing year. We we moved our uh, newsletters to Substack, I think, towards the end of of last year. And Substack was small enough then. And also, I mean, so Hamish McKenzie, who you all know, is a New Zealander, and he's one of the founders um, of the platform. For those who don't know, Substack is a an email newsletter platform which allows uh, the you know those who start newsletters. It's a very easy, lightweight way to to start and send a newsletter, but it also allows you to have paid subscriptions to newsletters, and uh, that's the the sort of genius of it. Um, which, and they, you know, a year ago they were, you know, you'd, you'd hear about them every so often. They had a few um, sort of big names who'd gone there. This year, 
they've had an extraordinary run of recruiting. Basically, every time a, a banner journalist has broken up with their news organisation, they've just immediately gone to Substack. From I mean, Glenn Greenwald was last week, uh, Andrew Sullivan earlier in, in the year. Bernard Hickey, obviously, is their, their biggest <laughs> recruitment. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but, uh, no, well, you're right. There's been a lot of buzz in the United States and elsewhere about this platform, which makes it very easy for journos who've just been, just been sacked to try and make some money by offering subscriptions. And one of the biggest challenges, and I went through this myself um, a while ago, from 2012 to 2016, I was running my own um, email subscription newsletter called uh, The Hive from the Beehive. And uh, I had to spend 60K to invent a system which combined MailChimp, built a website, um, uh, allowed me to uh, publish from the one place and maintain that um, database of subscribers, be able to ask them to change their credit cards when they were expired, all of those things, which are actually quite they're, difficult. They are tricky, yeah. And Substack does that all for you. So you don't have to worry about someone not getting their email that day because it bounced from a filter or um, someone's credit card expiring. That is done for you and they manage it. Now, at the moment, I haven't switched on the paid for stuff, but I will. it will be very easy to do come September 21st, 2021. <laughs> which, which just happens to be when that restraint of trade lapses. Uh, so let's talk about Newsroom. You, you were came on board at the founding. Uh, it's had a pretty amazing run, um, I think, has done a lot of things really, really well, uh, particularly in terms of the identification of, of talent and the deployment of it. Uh, you know, I think you look at the likes of Tom Coughlin, uh, Laura, Laura Walters, Mark Dolder, Sam Shastrzewicz, just really great young journalists, and they seem to, you know, it's one thing to pick them, it's another to kind of set them up and uh, allow them to to grow and deliver. You know, and I think that's they're amongst the, you know, dozen, two dozen most exciting young talents in the industry and I think it's instructive that, that they came through, uh, most of them in the Wellington. Uh, yeah, I'm really proud of um, everything that Newsroom's done. Uh, I started out with um, Tim and Mark at the end of 2016, basically said, I'll come on board and, and help you out. Um, we were directors together, so the three of us, Tim Murphy, Mark Jennings and myself were directors in Newsroom NZ Limited. I had a small shareholding. Um, I, they have a larger than 50% shareholding in the company and I have a 12 point something percent shareholding, which I still hold. And I'm a I'm cheering them on from the sidelines. I really want news, Newsroom to do really well. And I'm extraordinarily proud of um, the work we've done. But as you say, the people that we've brought up and um, as a someone who's been involved in the news business for 30 years as a journalist and an editor and a manager and executive and a recruiter, um, sometimes it's the work that the people you hired or manage, their, their work makes you prouder than anything you've done yourself. And um, you're right, uh, Mark Dalder, Samsha Steva, Talipa Fonseca, Laura Walters, um, they worked in the Wellington Bureau. I hired... Um, all of them except Sam, who'd, who'd come on board um, with with Tim and Mark, and I'm so uh, proud of the work they've done and continue to do. And not all of them have stayed with Newsroom. Obviously, That's Tom, though. yeah, Tom Coughlin's gone on to stuff, and um, not just uh, them and Newsroom either. Um, so uh, Alex Tarrant, who is now the press secretary to the finance minister, is someone that I worked with for five years and trained him up and mentored him, I suppose, at interest.co.nz, which was another one of my attempts to build a business model. And uh, and also, um, I'm, I'm really thrilled to see Janae Tibshraini doing so well in the press gallery as well, uh, d d getting down in the dirty details of the bond markets and fiscal and monetary policy. I share one of the scoops of the year with that um, incorrect bill passage. Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing really good, fantastic work. And... Um, Thank goodness, because if they're not doing it, it's never been done, and all sorts of mayhem would happen. Yeah. So, I mean, what you describe uh, sounds quite idyllic in a way. You, you know, you've got you've got a shareholding. You've, you're mentoring these, these fantastic young writers, and yet you've left. <laughs> what, what happened? Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, it's a it's a good question to ask. Um, so, I'd been with Newsroom for three and a half years. Before that, I'd been out on my own building a subscription newsletter, which was doing okay. 
and before that, I um, was the co-founder of Interest.co.nz. So we're talking there about nearly 12 years of startups. Um, they are hard work. <laughs> <laughs> i got a feeling you know exactly how hard uh, they I are know, to I know work. a little of that, yeah. yeah. Not just, um, just sheer work, number of hours, but financially, um, uh, I have been trying for 12 years to build a sustainable business model for useful journalism that makes a difference. Uh, and um, done it in a couple of different ways. Interest.co.nz was a, an ad-funded online site and still is. It's going great. Mm. David Chaston is the owner and I worked with him to build it up. And um, it's still um, uh, doing well, employing, I think, four or five journalists, taking ads from banks and lots of other people. People go there to look at what's happening with interest rates and banks and house prices and all that stuff. We had this saying at interest that there's only two things that really matter in New Zealand, interest rates and house prices. And that's about right. <laughs> They've got quite a strong relationship yep. too. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's going well. But I realised about 2012, 2011-12, that the game was over for online ad-funded news in terms of not being able to grow very quickly. So you can get to a certain level, but then you don't have the um, the real scalability and fast growth that you need to employ all these journalists that are being sacked by um, mainstream media companies. And, um, you know, I'm a, I, as well as being a um, crazy socialist, I'm also a mad capitalist. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I like to start a business and work and, and um, you know, create some value and, and capture some of that value. And what I found I was doing, um, particularly in the last uh, five or six years, was doing an awful lot of writing and work, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty buggered at the end of the day, like anyone else. Um, but uh, a lot of people were reading it and going, good stuff, Bernard. Thanks. Uh, and I'd say, yeah, isn't it good? <laughs> um, perhaps you could pay me for it. Oh, no, 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 you, you gave it away. And that's the basic problem. And it's a problem for media and journalism. And it, it creates this sort of dilemma. If you want to do something useful, it has to be seen by everybody. But for everyone to see it, either they all have to buy it or none of them have to buy it. And so the risk with a, with a um, subscription-based uh, pay-to-read strategy, of course, is that you become irrelevant. Um, you go off into a little sideline. You essentially create a small community of people who pay you for it. You become the tree that fell in the forest. So you can do the most amazing scoop, the most interesting analysis, and if... 2,000 people read it, well, then you're sort of irrelevant. And that's the problem for anyone starting up. When you try to start a news organisation, you want to make big splashes and get big audiences reading what you're doing. But in New Zealand, because of the way our main news companies have developed with stuff staying open, and until a couple of years ago, NZ Herald staying open, and of course you've got all the great journalism being pumped out from RNZ and News Hub, and of course the spin-off, um, you know, everyone thinks, wow, this is a great era for journalism. I get all this fantastic, much better, frankly, journalism now than I would have got four or five years ago, and it's all free. Brilliant. I'm filling my boots. And that's, that's what everyone's done. And uh, my idea with Newsroom was uh, we would put something uh, behind a paywall for a day, and then we would open it up to the public. And the deal was um, you buy a subscription to Newsroom Pro, and for that you get sort of close access to the stuff I'm writing because you get a daily email and you also get this scoop a day ahead of time and you pay for that privilege and also you, you pay to gift it if you like to the public when it goes public the next day. I mean, that, and that model feels like it makes intuitive sense because the value of in, uh, information is in its currency and, and how soon it's you know, having early access to it means that you can move on it faster than the person who doesn't pay for it, yet you still get the public good of it eventually making its way. Um, yeah, but it's vulnerable to the free rider problem. So um, before I go off down a rabbit hole of um, public good economics, economics. <laughs> <laughs> essentially, you know, um, I'm beginning recently to think this. People say that they're keen to improve the public good and they're all about sustainability and they're all about, you know, gifting to those who aren't so well off or that they really want everyone to benefit from this thing. But put them behind a closed door, behind a curtain in a 
voting booth, people are ruthless and selfish and are unwilling to fork over their hard-earned money for something that they don't really have to pay for. And, it, and my job was to sell subscriptions to a whole bunch of people, including large government departments and large corporates. And for three years, I had lots of really nice conversations with people saying, you're doing great work, fantastic. And I'd say, yeah, great, you should subscribe to us then. And they'd go, oh, budget's a bit tight at the moment. Or, um, you know, actually what you do publicly is all I need. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get the free stuff. And... Um, and there's not much you can say to that. Essentially, when you're trying to create a property right, which is what you're doing when you're putting something behind a paywall, um, you really have to lock that property right down. You have to put a fence around it and you have to make it hard. People have to pay to walk through that fence and see what's behind it. Otherwise, if you have a, a glass wall and everyone goes, fantastic stuff I can see behind there. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And then they keep on walking. And we had a certain number of people who subscribed to Newsroom Pro, and um, it made sense um, for it to grow to a certain level. But what I could see is that until this market changes, until we have Stuff lock itself down properly, NZ Herald lock itself down properly, um, potentially TVNZ and RNZ merge and um, fall into a dark hole of un- non-productivity. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's going to be really hard for someone to create a property right and sell it. And so um, after 12 years of startups and essentially, you know, working out that I was subsidising the public by doing this work, handing it over and asking for money and not getting it, that, um, yeah, I was I was tired. <laughs> I had enough of that. And for me, the, the moment when I realised that despite all the nice things people say about wanting to help subsidise the public good of journalism, how they want people to keep the bastards honest by asking them tough questions and coming out with the great exclusives and investigations. If you put it up for free, they'll take it and they won't pay for it. Some people will pay for memberships and essentially donate, and there's a certain number who will, and you guys have doing, done a great job, and so have we uh, at uh, pulling those members together and um, selling that you know, public good, if you like. But in terms of the the public good that journalists and commercial organisations produce and how it's funded. Um, what normally happens when you create a public good that isn't paid for with a subsidy from someone else is that the government will step in or philanthropists will step in. New Zealand doesn't have philanthropists, let's face it. Um, they've got a few people who donate to the Cancer Society and a few other places like that, but the amount of money that very, very rich people give away is awfully low in New Zealand. And um, so we have to watch out for that. So the only other um, vehicle, if you like, for subsidising a public good with a public subsidy is the government. And in the middle of COVID, I went to Chris Farfoy and um, looked at what the government was doing around, firstly, the second media package. Remember, we had the first media package, which was Lots of money for RNZ and TVNZ. <laughs> well, well, particularly for MediaWorks was, I think, the oh, biggest yeah. single beneficiary. Which yeah. Was, so TV oh. and radio did okay out of that, essentially not having to pay some government fees. Um, but not the sort of bulk of the journalism produced by newspapers and independent online services. Which is the bulk of the journalism created in yeah. New Zealand. The stuff are by far the biggest exactly. supplier of journalists. So this was all going to be solved in the second media package, <laughs> which uh, we waited for and waited for. And I think the- we're st- are we still waiting? Yep. Yes, um, yeah. <laughs> I asked Chris Farfoy about this, I think, four or five times. I did too. Like, I think Peter Stevens, uh, his press sec, is, I'm sure, heartily sick of yeah. hearing from the pair of it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was about $50 million we thought or been told or suspected. Uh, we now know that um, Winston Peters blocked it. Uh, Winston Peters was exposed by some reporting by Matt Shand at Stuff and by Guy Espiner at RNZ. And um, unfortunately, I think uh, that those organisations paid a price, a financial price, mm. for exposing um, the financial affairs of um, the New Zealand First Foundation. That's Bernard Hickey's honest opinion, if you're listening, uh, Brian Henry. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, they did pay a price. RNZ, for example, 
they thought they had uh, a few million dollars uh, extra that they could rely on in years to come. Turns out it was only for two years. And so RNZ, and this is extraordinary and painful f- for me to watch, and I was actually affected by it, has been cutting costs for the last six months in the middle of COVID-19 because the government wouldn't come up or tell the board that there was that two and a half million or whatever it was that they got a couple of years ago was going to be rolled over. It wasn't rolled over. If you look at the budget documents, you can see for RNZ, the number for last year and then the number for this year was like two dashes, as in we didn't get around to coming up with your number. And then later on, the government, the Treasury in particular, uh, turned up and said... Um, you know how you think you've got that extra $7.8 million that we gave you last year for two years? Well, actually, you don't have it. Uh, um, you're going to have to cut your cloth to fit. Extraordinary at a time. Then this is the public broadcaster of information to inform New Zealanders about the biggest public health threat in our lifetimes. People working day in, day out, their guts out for no you know, large amounts of money. And the government, which can now borrow money at 0.02%, which gave the racing industry over $80 million. Can't find 2 or $3 million in their kitty to help out. RNZ inform the public of this crisis. It, it told me a little bit about how the government's thinking. So the second media package didn't happen. And so I went and said, hey, you know, there's some independent um, news publishers here who are doing good stuff and are, um, you know, uh, potentially facing some uh, some cash flow issues like a lot of people were in COVID. And, uh, hey, wouldn't the government like to subscribe to these news organisations? This would be a good way for the government to help and to get something in return and to create a, you know, useful arm's length way of distributing public subsidies for a public good. And he's a good idea. And then he announced that the $1.3 million would go to independent publishers like Spinoff, Newsroom, Business Desk, those sorts of small independent groups that were um, that had memberships and subscriptions. Um, and then we waited, and then we waited, <laughs> and it was turns out it had been handed on to a government bureaucracy, Culture and Heritage, who then spent five months working out how to spend $1.3 million and... I can't say how much uh, Newsroom got, and I'm, I'm guessing you can't either, but it was a tiny proportion of that $1.3 million. And ultimately, um, three to four months into this wait for this money from the government, I actually realised that this government does not care a jot about the public good created by the commercially run news media. Otherwise, they would have pushed back against Winston Peters and they would have delivered on their promises. And the Prime Minister is one of those with the most ambivalent attitudes on this. She uh, has used and built up an enormous following for direct influence with voters through Facebook. And for those who followed her on Facebook, you would have gotten a little video note every... or well, note. I'm talking like a text journalist. A little, <laughs> video, <laughs> a little video every day during the election campaign saying, hey, you know, end of my day, here's what I'm doing, here's what I've done. Just political connection gold Mm. and when in the middle of the crisis we asked in the press gallery what are you going to do to make sure that stuff which at that point was uh, potentially about to be shut down luckily it wasn't uh, but it was close to it we said you know what about stuff and her answer was well that's not really my issue they're a commercial organization um I don't have the ways to reach the public that stuff does, um, apart from Facebook, and I've already got that. And um, for me, I, I think it's somewhat time for someone to call out the Prime Minister and her attitude towards big tech, and Facebook in particular, which last year we thought she was very aggressively pushing for big tech and Facebook to do the right thing through this Christchurch call. But increasingly, as the months have gone on, it's become clear to me she sees Facebook as a fantastic way to reach her audience and to reach potential voters, to essentially go around the news media, who most politicians, let's face it, love when they're in opposition but hate when they're in government. And this government is no different. And I um, despaired of the lack of support by this government for public subsidies, for public good journalism. 
And it stuns me at a time when we look the most together, cohesive, uh, productive uh, country in the world with a death rate of uh, five per million when America's death rate is 700 per million. And our prime minister looks like the most competent, kind, uh, useful prime minister in the world who was able to corral together a country and get them behind her health message and be as one, 90% in favour of the level four lockdown, which no other country in the world could do. Why was that? Yes, she's a fantastic communicator and accidentally on purpose, it was the right thing to do. But um, she also did it because she had the support of New Zealand's mainstream and small independent media for this message. So, and I think spin-off, the spin-off and newsroom played a major role in essentially illustrating the issues with amazing illustrations and stories from Mark Dolder and op-eds from various people to say, hey, a lockdown will hurt in the short term, but it's the right thing to do from a science and public health point of view, and we are behind what the government's doing. And not only the spin-off on newsroom, but NZME, Stuff, RNZ, MediaWorks, TVNZ, all got behind the government, let's face it, and said, yep, we're in this together. We're part of the team of five million. We back you, Prime Minister. And so the message that went out to the public was clear. It was uncontested. It was essentially, this is the right thing to do. Now, in other countries, that hasn't happened. So you've had media companies, in particular News Corp, obviously, in Australia. Anyone watching the news media in Australia will see that the News Corp um, tabloids, the Daily Telegraph and the Herald Sun, or the Sun Herald, I can never remember which way it goes, um, they have been you know, aggressively pushing against lockdown um, stringencies. The Australian... Oh, help us. <laughs> the stuff that they're writing on there. It's a good newspaper. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's pure Fox News stuff. And um, and then, of course, you've got Sky, um, t- uh, Sky News in Australia, which in the evenings is basically Fox News. Well, it, it's, at times it kind of makes Fox News look restrained. <laughs> yeah. Know, it's, it's kind of an extraordinary product. So what you have is in other countries, you've got a bunch of media saying dumb things, uh, weaponizing and enabling the misinformation that that bubbles up from the from the Facebookosphere, and um, and countries aren't as cohesive. They aren't as behind the message. Now, other countries also probably don't have the clear communications and the simple governance structures that we have here. But our media played an enormous role in providing a public good. They backed the government and ensured that that message got out. That isn't the case elsewhere. And it's not some sort of accident, you know, because Rupert Murdoch got bored with us in 1991 and sold the Fairfax papers (laughs) to Fairfax, which he did. Luckily, we don't have News Corporation in this country. And I feel the government took that for granted, just took it in a free ride away and walked off with it and haven't understood the role and the, the good work, the good public goods that were created by... The news media being sensible and organised and humane and getting behind the message. And um, three, four months into it and watching what they were doing, watching us fall away and wither away um, without helping, I said, I'm not coming back into this and risking my you know, financial future and also my, my workload because until the government realises that and actually has a strategy to deliver a public subsidy for a public good and um, stops being so freaking selfish, frankly, um, I can't see a way forward for commercial media, particularly startups, doing um, public good journalism at scale until, A, there's some resolution with stuff going behind a paywall properly, and, B, the government actually doing something about um, providing a public subsidy for this public good work. The track record on how they dealt with RNZ in the last year, the track record on how they've basically done nothing on stuff in NZME, their track record on, you know, working with the likes of um, certainly what I saw um, with the small independent players was awful. And I passed a judgment on that as well as, you know, could see that that this landscape is just not a place that's easy to launch a sustainable, scalable, um, commercially run news organisation without that public subsidy. 
And that, Maybe just the rent. I was about to say that that, that is uh, the, the the short answer to, to why Bernard Hickey left newsroom. So there was a whole lot in that, and uh, I want to pull on some of those threads. Uh, you now, uh, along with the Kaka, you are also writing a weekly column for stuff. Yeah. So just filed it this morning. Is this the one about Fulton Hogan? Uh, no, actually, um, that's that. I do that a couple a, of pieces. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, I had a good old crack at because well, I, I want to talk about the way <laughs> sure. that's just basically me indulging a, a mutual passion yeah. we share. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. But um, so so you're you're back at Stuff Week, which is an organisation that you've you've spent uh, significant amounts of time uh, over the years, uh, while also yeah being a, a critic in some respects of of their sort of no no paywall strategy. Do you want? And they're also the the, the organisation that has probably uh, they've had a a pretty extraordinary year to to go from. You know, as you said, that there were there were times when you felt touch and go about whether they'd even survive to the sale to Sinead for a dollar. To I think it's been quite a palpable reinvention of their editorial strategy to be much more, you know, the, the sort of pivot to trust as I think Sinead has has talked about. Uh, why why stuff for you, and what uh, what is your sort of assessment of of, of where they're at and, and their prospects from here? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really impressive and encouraging to see. Sinead, um, push ahead. Um, that must take some bravery to take on the risk personally of paying 900 people's salaries every month. So as a director of a very small organisation, and I'm sure you have this same, you know, wake up in the middle of the night sweating moment just before you have to make payroll, <laughs> you know, um, boy, to do it for 900 people, that's hard. And so I, I take my hat off to Sinead um, for taking that risk, particularly when it's not clear to me that she has a significant capital backer to help out when things get tough. Um, luckily for her and for all of us, there's been what I call the Harvey Norman boom. How, what happened there? Like, did, How is it that Harvey Norman has wrapped the, the front pages of Seemingly every newspaper produced in New Zealand. That's like that's got to be a story. Yeah. I'm, I'm so curious about it. How much did they pay to basically become the front page of all our newspapers for months and months and well, months and I months? Just, and months? I just hope Shane Curry and, and Sinead um, have lots of fantastic furniture. The, the whiteware <laughs> in those houses should just be some off the really chain. big flat screen TVs. <laughs> um, no, um, so Harvey Norman, as we've found out, and it's fun for me to watch how the economy um, travels. The lockdowns have forced us to stay at home and we're sick of the sight of our mouldy old couch and our very small TV. And given we're going to spend so much time at home and we're not travelling overseas spending $11 billion a year, hey, let's spend only $6 billion on couches. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what people have done. In the last um, three months, um, the hardware electronics sector, the Harvey Norman, Noel Lemmings of the world, uh, there's been an extra $300 million spent in those shops alone, more than there was a year ago. So those guys are feeling really um, chuffed and in a good mood to get out there and advertise. Yeah, and, and they've also, a lot of them still got the wage subsidy to, to, to help uh, yeah. sort out luckily, their balance sheets. Luckily, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so um, they're feeling in a good mood. And, of course, the newspaper companies are feeling 
let's get some cash in the door. What What's the big piece of silver we can sell to get the most cash in the door? And it's the wraparound. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was a journalist at the Dominion Post running the business section there, a wraparound was something you did because, you know, the guy in the sales department had some 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 really big compromise on you, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and and you had no choice but to accept the wraparound. And, and it was only, a crazy premium, right? Yeah, and you'd only see them once or twice a year, yeah. and it would be something very very special. Now um, the price has dropped sharply, obviously, and um, Harvey Norman and a bunch of others are now buying these wraparounds. Well, but I think Harvey Norman must have bulk bought from both organisations a huge amount in advance, which was a way of them kind of shoring up the balance sheet. Probably some. Should cover that story if you're listening. If you're a journalist, tell, tell that story. It's really interesting to me. You've got, all, you've got one click in it. Uh, <laughs> there's a public good problem there too. No, um, <laughs> but but it is. Uh, I, I think the thing that annoys me about it as a consumer of the news. This is such a digression, but front page matters. It's like really, really fun to look at. I, I find myself reading my – I subscribe to both the Weekend Herald and the Sunday South Times, and I read them less because they're not inviting me in. And I do think there's a little bit of an upfront you're, – you're taking the money up front, but at a certain point you've got to cut that off because if that becomes forever – I just think if I stop using it, I'll stop paying for it. And I'm obviously a very strange person, and I, you know, I apologize for that. But I don't think my behavior is that atypical that you can just give away that. But that you, real someone estate. must have come to you and said, Duncan, I want to do a front page takeover of the spinoff. Please, I'll give you X D thousand dollars. You well, must have. Th- thankfully, they haven't. <laughs> uh, but but we, you know, we have, we have also. You know, it's amazing some of the things that haven't happened uh, to, to, <laughs> to the spinoff. They just every day if I you're get out up there, and they, they don't happen. The Prices, X, X. <laughs> well, we've actually, I, I made these rash public pronouncements that we'd never do that. But, uh, you know, if the pri- you know <laughs> everyone has a price. Um, so so uh, let's, let's move on. Sorry, Sorry, I've digressed into that. So I'm, so I'm cheering on stuff. Um, uh, Sinead and uh, Boucher and Mark Stevens um, and the crew there, obviously I know um, way back a long time ago, uh, I was the head of digital at Fairfax, and so stuff was in my, you know, purview. And Sinead was the editor of stuff when I was the head of uh, Fairfax Digital, and I was on the advisory board at Trade Me, and went through all of that uh, period. So I saw how Sinead and Mark together um, built stuff up into this machine with a couple of million um, readers, and they did an amazing job at it. Um, I would have loved that they, if they'd pivoted. Um, and I'm still hoping they will, towards some sort of paywall in the way that the Herald did, but do it in a way that I think is more coherent um, than the Herald. Uh, we haven't seen that yet. Um, I'm living in hope, and uh, I hope that um, they manage to pull it off because um, we need all of those journalists and all of those newspapers to keep going and to be strong because... We all know that without those questions from those journalists and the ability to expose wrongdoing, those bastards, i.e. ministers and CEOs, and they're all lovely people, will <laughs> feel like they can get away with it. And um, that's a real value. And I, I say this as someone who's worked in non-democratic, non-free countries. So I worked for Reuters for 10 years. I spent time in the Philippines and in Indonesia and in China uh, mentoring and e- managing and editing work from journalists uh, covering markets and companies and economies. And as a naive young <laughs> Kiwi boy who'd only ever worked in New Zealand and Australia and London, where you have pretty free media, you can say pretty much what you want, um, with the exception of the defamation laws, which are tougher here than some other places, but basically it's this it's the same open environment. You can be critical of a prime minister. You can ask a tough question of a CEO. You can, you know, call bullshit on stuff. When I went to, the, to Singapore and China and Indonesia and the Philippines, it suddenly dawned on me what it's like to try and report in a country where you are afraid that the government is going to, at best, you know, kill your career at worst, put your family in a prison. And uh, I had this little moment when I was in uh, in Beijing once uh, training some journalists and I was giving them a pep talk about how 
tough they have to be with ministers and <laughs> CEOs and how they need to ask the hard questions and, you know, get in there and challenge them, you know, show them, go through the accounts and work out with the um, solicitation payments and, and uh, consultation payments were and ask whether they were bribes or not. And the sort of look of shock and, and fear, actually, came across them. You expect me to do that? Who are you? Mm. And uh, so a lot of these um, reporters, very good reporters, were locals. And um, one of my uh, expat colleagues um, pulled me aside halfway through and said, you do know that half of these reporters are afraid for their lives. The other half probably work for the government. (laughs) Yeah, I was about to say. And the room is probably bucked. And it sort of dawned on me. I mean, it was sort of funny and not... You know, that's how the rest of the world operates. Yeah, there's a huge chunk of the world that, that that's what is natural and normal. Probably a larger chunk of the world that's like that than yeah. it's like this and environment. The, and there is a value to having an open, transparent place where you can rely on a contract, you can rely on a property right, you can be sure that your boss, the politician, the CEO is going to be exposed for wrongdoing, and that there is someone independent who will ask the hard question and report the answer in public. Now, we take that for granted, way take it for granted. And well, I we, think we, we undervalue uh, well, that's, you know, that's the, exactly the benign the media environment that we have and, and the media ownership environment. The fact that, we, as you said earlier, we don't have Murdoch here. We don't really have any bad actors. We've got indifferent actors. We've got incompetent actors. But we don't have any bad actors in our media ownership uh, structure. Yeah, and, and no one with an obvious political axe to grind or using it to screw the scrum of a particular regulation or or law or anything like that that I've seen. And so um, there's a value to that. Now, the economist in me says, right, let's try and put a value on it. So let's go to the housing market, which is what I always do is go to the <laughs> housing market. <laughs> and so look at how much our housing market's valued at. It's valued at $1.4 trillion, which is actually $200 billion more than the start of the lockdown, but it's another thing. $1.4 trillion, which is just over four times our GDP. Now, most other countries in the world have housing markets which are worth, at best, two times GDP. So we're talking about overvaluation of about $600 billion, in part because there's a bunch of people in the world who want to put their money in a safe place, a nice place, a place where you're not going to get shot or imprisoned or your assets stolen off you or um, breathe the air and know that you're going to die in 10 years' time because of it. There's a bunch of people in China and Indonesia and India and a lot of places who want to put their money in New Zealand. And if we had not changed the laws, we would be flooded with that money right now. That's pushed up the value. So you could say at least half of that overvaluation is related to our open, transparent, competent governance process. And for the state... The public good that helps produce that environment gets nothing of that $400 billion of overvaluation. People aren't paying for it. Mm. And that's the free rider problem. Um, I wish I could get some of that $400 billion. <laughs> <laughs> just, a, just a little taste. Yeah. Do you have any confidence that, because, I mean, in some senses there's a contradiction in what you were saying earlier in, in, in that, you know, Winston Peters uh, was, the, you know, I think he's come out and publicly said that he was the handbrake on that that second tranche of media funding, and you know, your inference that it was a sort of revenge attack for the very good work of Matt Shannon, Guy and Espiner, Katie Newton, and so on. You know, it's certainly uh, the, these, the the timing uh, <laughs> is quite interesting on on that front, but also, you know. Th- there was a very the, – the media was hardly alone in terms of policy that wasn't passed because the uh, New Zealand First Party decided that they didn't want it to pass. I mean, we're supposed to have light rail, which was um, you know, nearing completion a kilometre or so from here that uh, is a long way from even starting uh, still. So, you know, and then on the other hand, you say that, you know, this is, this is on Labour Party, in fact, ultimately on, on Jacinda. Do you, do you have – any anticipation that now with this, you know, completely un- unprecedented in the MMP era, absolute majority that Labour have, that the 
sort of incoherence of their media policy where a lot of shiny things have been announced and very few of them have ever happened and if they have happened, they've happened for a year or two and then stopped happening. Will we see change, do you think, um, that might start to go some way to solving that sort of free rider problem or recognising what is ultimately a massive system risk for New Zealand and that we have, as a country, relied on this great benign um, media coverage that has been supplied to the public for essentially free uh, over this period of time, and that if that were to go away, diminish, be damaged, that the country would be similarly uh, compromised as a result, potentially. Uh, I do hope that the government, free of Winston Peters and the complications of a coalition, will go ahead and do something about this. They've said they would, and it's been a lot of good talk. You can, especially when you're in opposition, you you, you love a free media. But when you're in government, um, and I've noticed it over the last couple of years, a wariness develops. Uh, you know, you're naturally bruised by the, you know, complaints and the grumpiness of some of the reporting or the, you haven't felt your point of view has been gotten across the usual thing. And um, when I spoke to Chris Farfoy, um at a stand-up just before the election and asked when the second package was coming, <laughs> oh, it's definitely coming before the election, um, he basically said, um, well, is it such a problem anymore? I hear they're doing quite well now. So uh, I don't think there's going to be any action there. And when we asked the Prime Minister in the middle of the crisis when, you know, there was a really good case that if stuff had collapsed, the government should pick it up and use it to get the COVID message out there apart from anything else. The thing we've got to remember is that when they were talking about stuff collapsing, Bauer had just collapsed. It wasn't like there was this was happening in a vacuum. We had seen very viscerally that, that media companies don't last forever and the, 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 all the Harvey Norman raps in the world don't change the fundamentals of declining print revenues that are not being replaced anywhere near so well by digital revenues. Continue. Yeah, and, you know, if Sinead hadn't found that um, dollar coin down the back of the couch, maybe it would have been different. I mean, not every, not everyone wants to stand up and take that risk, and if she hadn't, I think Nine would have shut down stuff. And then where would how would the government get its message across? How would it connect with all those people? Yes, they can. you can connect with a few people on Facebook. But the sheer scale of stuff itself, but NZME too. You've got to remember that NZME is now one of its largest shareholders is one of those barbarians at the gate, private equity companies, who go around the world buying up um, newspapers, not because they love news, but because they love the cash flow that comes from it. And they can gear up and make... <laughs> and make a um, tax-free capital gain on the growth in their equity uh, if they think they can buy it cheap. And the future, and even and I'm cheering on stuff and I hope they get it right, the future is that these pressures are not going away, that newspapers will close, journalists will be sacked, governments and councils and mayors will get away with stuff, and everyone will go in five, ten years' time when there's some scandal, or even worse, they can see a scandal, but they go, hang on, how come everyone hasn't talked? Why isn't everyone talking about this? I can see it in the accounts in Note 17. Why isn't this public when there's just no one to make it public? So and I, I, I give the example of the Midwest of America. So between the coasts in America, those big swathes of um, red territory, uh, there are lots of little cities, you know, 100,000 here, 200,000 here. Uh, just last week, um, Salt Lake, which has 200,000 people, both its daily newspapers stopped publishing daily. There are multiple numbers of cities that are bigger than the size of Hamilton or Nelson or Gisborne or whatever, do not have newspapers anymore. There are entire state parliaments in America where no one is covering the legislative process. And what happens? The, the studies have shown that a town which loses its newspaper almost immediately sees an increase in spending by politicians and an increase in malfeasance and governance failures because there's no one watching. And in America, the end result of that was Trump. And then everyone said, oh, my God, I'm gonna, I better buy a subscription to the New York Times. So there was the Trump bump. Over a million subscribers went, uh, went to the New York Times and the Washington Post has done the same. And there has been this rebirth of excitement and, and, 
and a feeling of responsibility. Yes, I must pay for this journalist to keep the bastards honest. And I'm one of those. I pay for the New York Times because I know there's one journalist, her name is Maggie Haberman, <laughs> inside the press gallery in, in Washington who gives Trump an awful hard time. And it's brilliant. And he, she does all sorts of scoops. And I pay for that. And I'm I'm proud of it, and I feel like I'm contributing. In New Zealand, um, we need to get some of that um, zeal and drop our complacency and stop this exceptionalism we have, which is that somehow we're different, we're lovely, we, we're kind, we're nice, we've got good systems. No, we don't. We don't have an upper house. We don't have an um, activist Supreme Court. Our system in Parliament means that whoever is the Prime Minister, if they have a one-party government, is basically a dictator for three years. Now, we can hope we have a nice one, and you could argue, you know, we've got one that isn't going to do horrible things right now. But we had a Robert Muldoon. You know, it, we're not immune from this. Talk to anyone local government in New Zealand who tries to cover some of the smaller councils, uncovered by the media in any useful way. All sorts of dodgy things going on. So we shouldn't be so complacent. And frankly, if you haven't already subscribed to something or joined a membership of something that's doing great journalist work, well, I call bullshit on you. Get out there and subscribe to something or become a member of something. And maybe you already are. Maybe that's why you're listening to this. Uh, but um, don't rely on the government to solve the problem. And don't think that it's not a problem. It is. I mean, that, that's actually a great place to end. I, I did want to talk about the wage subsidy, which uh, you know, is a mutual obsession of ours. And I think in some ways is a, a classic example of the kind of thing that doesn't get, you know, I mean, that was $10, $12 billion, uh, depending on how much ultimately gets given back, more than twice the amount of all, uh, you know, I think more than four times the amount of all treaty settlements to this point. The, and and. I mean, as you as you pointed out this week, uh, Fulton Hogan received uh, thirty three million dollars, and this this is a contractor that basically is a government. Uh, you know, they, they, the huge amount of work they do is for the government. They hundreds, of of hundreds of millions a year. You see their shiny trucks and their and their fences around the country all the time, to the point where you probably don't even see them. Uh, they received $33 million in a wage subsidy, which they manifestly didn't need. They made a $200 million profit and uh, delivered an $80 million uh, dividend to their shareholders, which this isn't thousands of, of people like you and me who've got a, uh, some tiny stake in them through their KiwiSaver. This is basically a couple of families who are just fabulously, intergenerationally, unconquerably wealthy. And they have elected to to keep that subsidy. That, to me, is is a you know a classic example of the kinds of reporting that, and the kinds of questions that the government needs to be asked to account for. Because this is the, basically the biggest thing we've ever done, and we did yeah. it very quickly. And it was in our name, and um, someone needed to call bullshit. And often, you'd be surprised, New Zealand's a small place. A lot of people are reluctant to call bullshit if they're involved in public life. The independent media is one of the few people in place in instances like that where there is someone who can call bullshit and it's useful. Now, we have some protections. You know, we have auditors general and we have the police and the serious fraud office and various things. But just one example, New Zealand First Foundation – would the serious fraud office have known about that or looked to prosecute it? Would the public have known about it before the election if Matt Shand and Guy and Espiner hadn't done the hard work and their editors had decided to take on Winston? At Newsroom, um, and I'm sure you've seen the same example, uh, we have a list as long as our arm of um, writs and attempts to shut us up by um, Winston Peters for a start, and and others. And we've stood back, we've we've stood up to them. Olanga Tamariki, for example, <laughs> tried to stop us from publishing, uh, from running that video that we did, which ended up in five official inquiries. And now there is a minister who might actually do something about it. Um, this happens every time. And a lot of people take it for granted. Oh, well, that's public information. It's just a commodity. It'll come out. That's fine. We don't really need the media. They're all just basically clickbait, you know, um, <laughs> yep. kids who know nothing. Well, actually, have a look at how your government actually works and what y you could have if they weren't there. 
Now that's you know self interested thing for me to say because you know I'm the I'm the beneficiary. Well, I I get paid for for doing work, um, for content, continuing. And you know you don't want to get too up yourself. Uh, you know thinking that you're the savior of the world. Um, and just like everyone else, uh, as a journalist, I think a bit like a carpenter with a hammer. You know, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> I've got some journalism that can fix that. <laughs> but, um, you know, we are valuable and we do play a role. And unfortunately, it's not being valued by the public or the government. And it is creating a complacency that will come and bite us. And if you want to, if you want to listen, if you want to see a, you know, fast forward to what happens... Well, just think about what's happened in the last couple of days in America where that entire swathe of the Midwest red is that way because so many of those towns and cities have lost their journalists and now people rely on Facebook for their information. That's a bleak uh, but entirely appropriate place uh, to end up. Uh, Bernard, thank you so much uh, for coming up and uh, really, really... Good to talk, and and please do subscribe to the Kaka uh, if you get the chance. It's a I, I really 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 enjoy it, and I think access to that brilliant mind uh, in motion is is a is a brilliant thing to be able to get for free. Yeah, for free for, for now. For now. For now. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Tina Tiller, for recording, and Stuart Simonland uh, for for my notes. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Butler here, podcast manager at the Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.